official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to K1 Battlecast. Today is a special episode for you. That's right. It's a bonus holiday episode, and we're finally going to get through the full interview with Mike Zambitas. Michael and he had a chance to talk, as you know, and we've been trying to get through it, but we just haven't been able to the last couple of weeks, and today we're going to take that time and get through it. We will also talk about, in the best and worst, who was the best Grand Prix fighter to never claim the championship belt. They went all the way, but couldn't quite reach the pinnacle. Couldn't reach the throne. All right, well, let's get into it and get to that interview with Mike Zambitas. I hear the ringling, jingling of bells. It must be a super interview with a super visitor. So, Mike, let's go back to Seoul, Korea in 2010. Your fight against Shahid. What were your thoughts when it was announced that you were fighting Shahid? As soon as I heard that Shahid was my opponent, I knew I would be in for a hard match. And that is just what happened. Shahid was tough. Mike, what was your strategy before the fight? My strategy was to attack as much as I could, then defend, attack, and defend. I planned to do that as long as possible, and I knew that I had to keep on him in the match and not relent. At any time in the fight, were you worried that you might lose to Chahid? No. I felt supremely confident. I felt physically and mentally in great shape, and I never felt for one moment that I would lose the match. How did you manage to keep such an incredible pace for the entire fight? <laughs> a lot of things played their part. I was in great physical condition at the time. And Shahid pushed me to fight harder than I ever had before. He really pushed me to my highest level. When the fight was awarded one extra round, what did you think? Did you think you should have won it after three rounds? I believe I had won it. And so did a lot of other people. We all thought I'd won it inside of three rounds, especially because I had knocked down Shahid twice. The reason I think they made it an extra round was because it was such a tough, hard fight. But again, we believe we had won it after three rounds. Many people say that that fight was the single greatest kickboxing fight in history. Would you agree? Well, I feel very privileged and personally proud that people from all over the world have said this about the fight. People have called it an epic match. I gave the fight everything I had using every one of my attributes to win that match. If I was in the audience seeing that match between me and Shahid, I would have said, wow, what a match. Is it still a fight, Mike, that people ask you the most about? Yes, for sure. On social media, everyone talks about this fight, not just here in Greece, but around the world. And no matter where I go or who I talk to, everyone constantly talks about that fight. In the 2010 finals, you fought Petrosian and knocked him down, but the referee said it was a slip. Do you believe it should have been awarded as a knockdown? 
I believe it was a knockdown, and many people who saw the fight agree that it was a knockdown and not a slip. I hit Petrosian clearly on the jaw with a clean punch, and Petrosian fell on his back, and he stayed down for a moment, and therefore the referee should have called it a knockdown. He fell on his back, not on his butt. It was a knockdown. If the knockdown had been scored, the fight would have gone an extra round, and I believe that I would have beaten Petrosian that night. I believe I would have become the K1 Max champion on that night. You fought Masato twice and both times went the distance. What was Masato like as an opponent? Masato was a very smart fighter, a good athlete, technically very good, even though he wasn't as strong as some of the other fighters at the time. Masato also had the backing of all the Japanese fans who were crazy for him. That played a big part in his success. Whoever watches my matches with Masato must realize that both fights should have at least been draws or that I beat Masato when I fought him. I felt I won those matches, or at least they were draws. Tell me about fighting Buakal in 2006. What was that experience like? against Buakau in 2006 was of great interest to many people around the world. At the time, I just started a new campaign which focused on weight work in the gym rather than focusing on sparring. Buakau presented a very big challenge for me, and I don't think I was quite ready for the challenge. But I wasn't going to be scared of him. I always accept the challenge, and I fought Buakau at his very best. My coach was in Thailand, so he wasn't there for me for the fight. Even though Buakau went on to become a two-time K1 champion, I never considered Buakau to be a superior fighter to me. I treated Buakau like any other fight, and I didn't find anything extraordinary about Buakau. I wasn't fully prepared, but I took him on and I fought him. I wasn't overawed by Buakau at all. Mike, what was your best win in K1? Uh, a few opponents come to mind. As I think about it, I go back to my first time fighting in Japan and my fight against Albert Kraus, who I knocked out with Gago Drago, who gave me a very hard-fought bout. With Kid Yamamoto, it's another one that comes to mind. And of course, I think back to my fights with Petrosian and Masato. If I'd beaten those guys, I would have gotten a couple of K1 Max belts. You fought every K1 Max champion, Masato, Sawa, Buakau, Kraus, and Petrosian. Who was the hardest out of all the K1 Max champions? The first one who comes to mind is Andy Sauer. Anyone who saw my fight against Sauer can comprehensively say that after the first three rounds, I'd won the fight. Andy Sauer himself said that the judges were kind to him by granting the extra round. My bout against Drago was very, very difficult. My hands and my feet were swollen after that fight. For me, personally, the bout that is the hardest is the fight where you have to give not only your internal strength, but your inner strength. Against Drago, I had to go deep into my inner strength, my inner being, to come through and beat him. That win came from deep within me. 
In 2006, I fought Tatsuji, who wasn't so well known, but that is one match I will never forget. Tatsuji was a very hard opponent for me. And these are my memories of the hardest opponents. Each one of them helped me to lift my own performance because they were so good at what they did and pushed me to the next level. In your opinion, Mike, who was the greatest K1 Max champion of all time? I spent 11 years fighting in Japan. Who was the best changed every year. One year, someone was the best. Another year, someone else was the best. Out of all the fighters who won the K1 Max, I would have to say Andy Sauer and Giorgio Petrosian. But it is too hard to just pick one. I was close to the action, and I saw them all as great champions, year in and year out. For a couple of years, it was Buokau. Later on, for a couple of years, it was Petrosian. I can't single out just one fighter as the outright greatest. Mike, you've often been criticized for being too small. And most people believe that if you were bigger, you would have become a K1 champion. Do you agree with that? <laughs> no, I don't agree. I had 180 fights with 87 knockouts and 24 draws. With that sort of record, the statistics don't agree with the assumption that I was too short. I was the only Greek fighter in K1 and didn't really get the backing of the Japanese fans who supported their own. Again, if that knockdown against Petrosian had been scored, I think I would have come away that night as the K1 champion. I also had those two fights with Masato where I felt I should have won. If those had been counted as wins to me, I could have even won two more K1 Max belts. You saw what Mike Tyson did in boxing, and he was a short heavyweight with lots of knockouts. I think I was the equivalent at middleweight to what Mike Tyson was in heavyweight boxing. But in kickboxing, I fought my hardest every year I competed, and I was able to throw punches that ended in knockouts. This is why I developed a big fan base. I had an exciting KO style of fighting that pleased people. I don't believe that if I was taller that I would have won more fights. People followed me because I had huge power. Being taller wouldn't have made a difference. Height didn't play any bearing on me not becoming a K1 champion. Mike, you were associated with Stan the Man Longinides early in your career. What influence did Stan have on your early career? Stan was a very special person to me because he opened the door for me to fight in Australia. I used to love watching Stan fight on video back when I was younger. I was a huge fan of Stan's fights in K1 and elsewhere. And I would study every one of Stan's moves with a keen eye. Stan came to Greece and we met up together. We sparred together. And Stan said to Australia's top promoter, Tariq Solak, after we sparred, I have a small stick of dynamite here named Mike Zambidis. 
Stan brought me over to Australia and showed me both in body and mind how to make the correct movements in the kickboxing world. I want to say thanks to Stan because he was the one who showed me the way and took me to Japan. I owe him a great debt for his support and help. Mike, you were renowned for your powerful punches, especially your hooks and your overhand right. What was the secret to generating so much power in your punches? Uh, thank you. I suppose it's in my DNA. So I guess I have to thank my mom and my dad for that. I also worked out a lot with weights. And you could say... I was always very light on my feet and agile. I always trained very hard, and in each and every one of my fights, I gave 100%. This is what allowed my ability to come through when I was fighting. You could say that it comes down to my unwavering ethic of hard work and my DNA. Mike, you had your last kickboxing fight in 2015. There were always rumors that you would have one more comeback fight. Did you ever consider it? I had my last fight in 2015 against Steve Moxon. For two years after that, I was in a state of confusion, not sure whether I wanted to stop fighting or to take more fights. Always going up and down in weight and dieting added more confusion for me. Two years after my last fight, I began working out again. And I actually said to my coach, bring me someone to fight. I couldn't get it out of my system. I kept sparring opponents and beating them in the gym. And I was feeling good. I said to my coach, bring me another sparring partner. Bring me a better sparring partner. I was ready to go. I decided enough was enough, and I went to Germany to find an opponent to fight in Stuttgart. I had one last fight there, and the arena was full of Greek people who were supporting me. It was a great success. Last question, Mike. If you were offered a Legends fight now, against maybe Masato or Sawa, would you do it? I have opened up other doors now in my life. I have my twins, I have my work. I have many different interests I'm pursuing. An offer like that would require a lot of thought. And, well, I can't give you an answer for that right now. That sort of fight, a Legends fight, would create a lot of interest. Mike, I have a very good condition, you know, my body, my psychology, everything. And, you know, I feel it. All of this. course. Well, I'm very it, close. It, thank you so much, Mike. It's so good to see you again and talk to you. You just heard Michael Chavello's exclusive interview with Iron Mike Zambidis. Now I'd just like to make a really quick announcement that we brought up last week about people's ability to come to Japan and check out the K1 Max show in person on March 20th. I would like to encourage people because it's so easy to travel to Japan right now you could get a ticket and you could come to the venue on March 20th so I'm telling it's, you it's, it's yeah, entirely it's a, possible it's a Wednesday night and that's interesting you say that Jonathan because it was just announced on the news uh, earlier this week in Australia that the number one tourist destination for Australians over the last years has not for the first time in years, it's it's usually been Bali, yeah. Indonesia, but now it's Japan. 
Wow. Japan's the number one destination, particularly Tokyo is the number one tourist destination for Australians. So stop by, get your ticket now. We are going to have more news on this as it unfolds on fighter signings, etc. Get your ticket now, folks. They're on sale. Check out the K1 website, grab a ticket. We're looking at our history, checking it twice, making sure which fighters have been naughty or nice. nice. All right, now we're going to introduce the best and worst of K1. And this time, we're going to look at the best fighter to never win the K1 World Grand Prix. Juicy, juicy, Jonathan, juicy. This is a question I get asked time and time and time again. And usually my answer varies between a few guys. Um, I'll tell you why, but uh, Jonathan, not an easy one to to debate, This not an easy one to answer. This is a tough one. Michael, it's uh, because there are so many greats. There are so many greats, but there can only be one champion. It, it's difficult. So, folks, as you listen to this, I'm going to run through the cases for a few different fighters who deserve to be, well, you can't say hold the crown, but I guess hold the title of the best to never win it, the, the ultimate bridesmaid of K1, if you will. Uh, and then at the end, um, I'd love to hear on social media your thoughts as to who is the best K1 fighter to never become K1 Grand Prix champion. And at the end of this, Jonathan, you're not getting off scot-free. All right. You're going to give me your fighter. The but pressure's you know on. What? You, you, can listen, you can listen to my analysis first and, and, and see what you think. So let, let, let's let's go through it. Who is, the, who is the best fighter to never win the K1 World Grand Prix? As I said, one of the most debated questions in K1 history. While there were only ever seven winners of the K1 World Grand Prix, the debate is wide open for... Who was the best to never win the crown? And first of all, you have to look at the runners-up from every year. So if we look at these statistics, here's how they stack up. Masaki Satake was a runner-up in 1994, so one time. Jerome Labana, a two-time runner-up, 95 and 2002. Mike Bernardo, one-time runner-up, 1996. Crowcrop. Mirko Krokop, Filipovic, one-place runner-up, 1999. Ray Sefo, one-time runner-up, 2000. Francisco Filio, runner-up in 2001. Musashi, two-time runner-up in 2003-2004. And Bada Hari, two-time runner-up in 08 and 09. So if we go by the statistics alone, the top three K1 fighters, Statistically, to never win the crown were Jerome Labana, Musashi, and Bada Hari, who all placed second two times. Now, if you dive deeper into the stats, you'll find that Jerome Labana placed third two times as well in 1999 and 2007. So at the moment, that's Jerome Labana, two-time runner-up in 95 and 02, two times third placed in 99 and 07. With statistics as our guide, Jerome Labana then is the best to have never won the K1 World Grand Prix, having placed runner-up twice and third twice. But did Jerome actually come close to winning the Grand Prix in either of the two finals he was in? The answer is no. He was easily knocked out by Ertz in 1995 in the final, and Ernesto Hust broke his arm in the 2002 final. 
Honestly, both those times, Jerome was never in with a look to win it. What about Butter Hurry? And Butter's two times in the final. 2008 really was prime Butter Hurry. He was primed to win it, but he got frustrated by Remy Bajeski's defensive style and was, of course, disqualified after a brain fart when he stomped on Bonjeski in the final of 2008. The only red card, mind you, in the history of the K1 World Grand Prix final. Very famous image of Nobuaki Kakuda, the referee, issuing that red card to a devastated Bada Hari. And in 2009, when Bada placed runner-up to Semi Schult, well, Semi handled him pretty easily in the final. He won via a three knockdown rule in the first round. So semi absolutely annihilated Bada, knocking him down three times. The other guy we have to look at then is Musashi. Now Musashi placed runner up twice in 2003 and 2004. And both times he makes a very good argument as to have been the best to have never won the crown because he comes the closest. In 2003, Musashi beat Ray Sefo and Peter Ertz both by decision, losing to Rumi Bunjaski in the final, also by decision. In 2004, in what was, I get it, I get it, what was one of the weakest K1 Grand Prix lineups of all time? Musashi did beat Ray Sefo, then he beat Cal Klai, both by extra round decision, the gas tank on this guy, amazing. Then he pushed Remy Bonjaski in the final again to two extension rounds before losing to Bonjaski. So looking at these facts, the argument is solid that out of all the runners-up in the history of the K1 World Grand Prix, it was Musashi who came closest to actually winning the Grand Prix in 2004 when he pushed the eventual champion to two extension rounds. Also, though, we have to mention Francisco Filio did push Mark Hunt to an extension round in the 2001 Grand Prix final. It's really hard statistically, okay, statistically to not award the best to never win it title to Musashi statistically. But now let me ask you this, folks. What if a prime Musashi fought a prime Labana or a prime Musashi fought a prime Bada Hari? Who would have won it? Would Musashi from 2004 have beaten Labana of... 1995, would he have beaten Bada Hari of 2008? I think on both occasions, Musashi loses. Just my thought. So then what about Prime Labana against Prime Bada Hari? Another really tough question. Both men at their peaks were killers with two of the strongest knockout punches of their eras. You had the southpaw, of course, in Labana, K1's most famous southpaw. His left hand was a killer. His right hand was a killer too. His jab was superb. I actually believe that Jerome Labana, I believe, if memory serves me correct, Jerome is actually right-handed, but fights left-handed. 
But a hurry, of course, is orthodox. Uh, who wins it? Who wins between a 95 Labana and a 2008 Bada Hurry? Tough one. I think Bada Hurry beats prime Jerome Labana. I think he knocks him out. So again, it's, it's, it's a tough question. Who's the best to never win it? Musashi, Labana, Bada Hurry all make good cases as being the best to never win it. Sefo, Bernardo, Feitoza, Filio, Krokop, Sataki – also, all make very solid cases. And I, I tell you what, that's actually a hell of a lineup. Imagine a fantasy lineup where we put all the runners-ups in their primes against each other in a tournament. Who would emerge from that tournament? Sefo, Musashi, Labana, Hari, Filio, Krokop, Bernardo, Sataki. Who would win that eight-man tournament? My favorites in that would be Hari and Sefo, for the record. Well, okay, getting back to our whole debate today, am I going to actually answer who's the best K1 fighter to never win the K1 World Grand Prix? It's out of Labana, Hari, and Musashi. The heart says Labana. The mind says Bada Hari. The statistics say Musashi. Oh, man. Jonathan, do I have to give an answer? I must. You know, I, I should. Shouldn't I, I? I think you should, but um, I can understand your reasons for not wanting to. I mean, it's what a difficult question, dude. I'll just say you suck. I was expecting a bit of support there. Like, <laughs> oh, don't worry, Michael. It's okay. You no, no, I, I, I love to put you on the spot. I'll, I'll give All my right. answer too, All so right. it'll be fair. No, 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 no. How about you give your answer first? Okay, you fair enough. First. Fair then enough. I'll, then, I'll, then I will give mine. Go and All give right. your, you give yours. Well, you've laid out a lot of really great arguments, and before I listened to your your spiel, um, I wouldn't have guessed Musashi. I wouldn't have picked him, but the way you laid it out makes a very strong argument that he was the best to never win it, in the or had the best chance in the times that he fought. But you got to give it to LeBanner, because you have to wonder what would have happened had his arm not been broken in a million places by Ernesto Hust. If that hadn't happened, I got to give it to him. But what are your thoughts? You know, you know that is a... Since we're playing in fantasy land. Good, no, no, since we're playing fantasy land, it's a very good scenario to consider. I still think Ernesto was beating him before yeah. the arm break happened. Okay. Um, I think he was on his way to outpointing Jerome. I don't know if he would have knocked out Jerome. Um, it just took him out of the loop for so many years after that, you know? And, it did. And okay, it really did. He couldn't compete for a long time, so. He had, he had the steel pins put in the arm. And yeah. We all seen the very famous x-rays of the arm from Jerome. It was, it was a sad way to end his K1 Grand Prix career. But I think that no one, after Ernesto got a second chance in that tournament in uh, 2002, I don't think anyone was going to stop Ernesto getting a fourth championship on that night. Fair enough. Um, and, and I guess now that the ball is in my court, I've got to give an answer finally. And okay. I agree with you, Jonathan, in that my heart – wants Jerome LeBanna to have been a K1 World Grand Prix champion at some stage. You know, you, you talk about Peter Ertz being Mr. K1. And the reason why Peter is Mr. K1 is because he was so invested in K1. He was everything that embodied K1 heart and spirit and technique and fighting attitude. And Jerome LeBanna was also that guy. Hmm. K1 was also the house that Jerome LeBanna built. And for that reason, he deserves to have 
become a K1 Grand Prix champion at some stage, but but I don't think Prime Jerome Big Butt. I like Big Butts. I cannot lie. <laughs> I don't think Sir Mix-a-Lot. a Prime Jerome LeBan. I don't think a Prime Jerome would have beaten a Prime Butter Hurry. Yeah, I think a Prime Butter Hurry knocks out Jerome LeBanner, and for that reason, for mine, Butter Hurry is the best to have never become a K1 World Grand Prix champion. So, folks, we have division. And he came so close. He came so So close. close. Yeah. He should have beaten Remy. He he really should have. He should have beaten Remy. And I think he may have beaten Remy. But, you know, the follies uh, of youth. It's a story. It's a follies of youth and a story for another day. We will get to reviewing that 2008 final. That entire tournament was one of my all time favorites. But we have division here at K1 Battlecast. Jonathan says, Labana. I say Bada Hari. Drop us a line on social media. Let us know your thoughts. Who was the best to never become the K1 World Grand Prix champion? That wraps up today's bonus holiday episode of K1 Battlecast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. This Friday on December 29th, we'll be back for our regularly scheduled show where Michael and I will discuss his interview with the living legend, Mark Hunt. Please send your questions and thoughts to our email address. We'll include that in our show notes. And be sure to check out our fledgling little group on Facebook. Happy holidays, everyone.